In this episode, you think you're the best when you're inside your own company, right? I truly believe it. At some things, we're the best. But are we the best at everything? You realize this industry really is so far behind other industries in terms of what modern production looks like. Five years from now, with the complexity of cars, the complexity of the industry, I don't know how you can't start going this direction. Welcome. You're listening to the Collision Buzz podcast presented by Driven Brands, the largest automotive franchise organization in North America. I'm your host, Ron Zapatello, bringing over 25 years of collision repair experience. The Collision Buzz is a show that dives into the auto body repair industry in support of the independent body shop owner. Each episode features guest leaders and operators from all aspects of the collision repair industry to discuss the challenges, solutions, and insights that have helped them in their journey to success. Stay tuned each month for new episodes to come. Hey, thanks everybody for being here today. We're going to talk about labor segmentation and efficiency in the climate that we have currently with no technicians out there, right? Uh, we either have to build our own or we have to take them from someone else. So how do we maximize our efficiency with the labor force that we have today? Let's talk about how we could segment that labor process and how people are out there doing that in order to maximize their efficiency, and their profits. So let's go around the room real quick and give me a little bit about you, your history from where you were to where you're at today, maybe number of stores, revenue, that sort of thing. So Sebastian Torres from Carstar in Ontario, Canada, tell us a little bit about you. So it all started with my dad, really. My dad started his automotive career in Florida as a detailer. But when I was young, like probably around the age of 12 to 13, I, I was always around the shop you know, go clean the shop was mainly my job growing up. And then eventually I transferred over to the prep department, did detail as well. And then I kind of followed through until we ended up branching off in 2019 and creating our group. Right now we have three stores, two in Brantford, one in Simcoe. It's my father, my mom, my wife, and myself. We run the group. The three stores have approximately 10,000 production square feet with about 43 employees and 8.5 million in combined revenue. Wow. Wonderful. That's awesome. So 10,000 square feet at each facility? Yes. Wow. That's good numbers out of that. Love to hear that. And a family business too. Also in a family business, Clark Schwartz from Carstar in Illinois. Clark, tell us more about you. Yeah, it started as a business for my father and uncle back in 1980. Always quality first. Customer base was number one. Insurance relations were number two. It worked great for a long time, but everyone knows where the industry's been tracking for the last 15, 20 years. And when we joined with Carstar, we were also already really enhancing the way we did production and administrative at our facilities. So it was perfect timing for everything. It's a 10,000 square foot store, the first store we have right now. We're in the process of opening our second store. And the original main store has now, I think we cleared a little over 3 million in revenue out of that store last year. And we're really targeting somewhere around 3.5, 3.8 this year. That's awesome. Great to hear. Also with us today, we have a fixed franchise partner, Dave Caulfield. Tell us more about you. So I've been in the collision repair business since about 1977. I'm my 45th year here. Opened my first shop in 1988. In 1990, it converted everything to collision. But prior to 90, very focused on the production process with the lesser expensive paint jobs. Fascinated with Earl Scheib, fascinated with Mako. And that taught me a lot for what I do today. I've very much brought that into the everyday business of the shop and present those theories to everybody constantly, you know, trying to bring the assembly line into this business without being all of one OE. So in 1990, 98, I uh, merged my shop with the Bickets, Eric, 
had a vision to get Fix Auto going in the United States. So we merged our shops together. We felt one plus one was three. That worked out real well for 20 years. And we uh, built a few shops along the way. In 2017, I sold out of that wonderful partnership. It came to an end and I had high hopes to conquer this heavy collision model in the repair industry because I'm a big believer of segregating the work, you know, the heavy from the light, not by dollar, of course, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But with that said, opened up Heavy Collision Center here in Anaheim, California, opened up an express shop right across the street. And that express shop was purely designed to understand how an express shop would work, how the work was segregated, and then eventually move that a couple miles away. So uh, just recently I sold that shop as uh, last Friday, actually sold it to another fixed member. And we've consolidated the express and the heavy all on one property, but it is separated. We figured out how to do that. Revenues last year were uh, 4.2 million. And that was with the express store only open for a few months. Last month we did 500. And so we'll be doing out of 20,000 square feet here. Our projections for 2022 out of the heavy hit center will be about $6 million. So we're on track for that. And that's good. We have about 17 employees here. We love it. Lots to work on, lots to do. Not perfect by any means, but your brain can't stop thinking, you know, how we can make it better. I agree with you. Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. I mean, selling a shop's a big deal, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't matter if it's a small shop, a big shop, a hub and spoke type model shop or whatever. It's still a big deal and a different challenge, right? Because you said you brought that into your store from two separate stores to pulling it all together into one store. So Let's talk about that for a second. Tell me about your current labor production model and in your store right now. So you had two stores, one heavy hit, one express center, and you put them together. Mm -hmm. What does it look like now in your store? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks for asking that. You know, the whole model is based around somewhat of a hub and spoke. So the hub would pretty much be the heavy collision work, and then the express stores would take on everything that doesn't qualify for heavy. So just to be clear how we determine what work goes in that shop. It's not based on price or anything like that. It's based on the severity of the damage. So anything with structural damage, anything with frame damage, anything that needs a replaced frame, any car that needs a panel welded, no matter how big that weld is. So, you know, door skins, what have you, to quarter panels, floors, all that stuff, they qualify for the heavy hit center. Everything else is express. The uh, heavy hit center, average ticket's probably around $7,800. Gross profits on those between 38, 41% on average. The express jobs, again, there's no structural, no welding, no mechanical, more than an alignment or an AC. That's about uh, 65% of your work. And those average tickets are around $1,900. The cycle times on those, you know, you're, you're really shooting for the threes, but you're about four and a half at the end of the day. On the heavy collision center, our goal is to be at 10. We're at mm. 16 through the uh, supply chain issues. Sure. But we've had it down to under 10. 10,000, 10 days. That was a few years back. And we're uh, bringing that back home. And we suspect that the supply chain issue might ease up before the third quarter of the year. That'll be nice. But we do split the work up in each shop based on repair techs and R&I techs. In the heavy collision model, 50% of the measured time to repair a vehicle is disassemble, reassemble. And I'm hopeful that a lot of shops are learning that over the years as time goes on. A lot of them do, some don't, but it's critical. Yes, sir. And there's always been talk about, well, I'm going to get, you know, minimum wage guys or whatever to take those cars apart and put them back together. It's well worth the investment to invest in the professional tech to get those lines going, at least have a leader there. And then you can bring those upcomers, you know, into the business that way. But doing a model like this and becoming a training center, it's just not a good mix right off the bat. But disassemble, reassemble that way. We have a back line, three techs on it. All they're doing is welding 
pulling, metalsmithing, repairing vehicles. Right. You know, so you might have a 67 hours on a job and 32 of it go on four lines to the backline tech and the rest is all the R&I for the frontline techs. We flag them. We don't pay hourly. We used to. One of the big challenges when we opened the store was that we put everybody on guarantees because you got that issue of teaching old dog new tricks, right? No offense to anybody, but the point is, is that if you have a seasoned 30, 35 year tech and you bring them in your operation and you tell them that I just want you to pull frames or I just want you to do this, they're like, well, I'm an artist and I do everything. And I said, well, I can appreciate that. But this opportunity is about segregating these skill sets. You know, we're looking for welders, we're looking for frame guys, and we're looking for disassemble, reassemble guys. So believe it or not, it worked out okay. But on those guarantees, you know, obviously the incentive and the motivation shifted a bit. Everybody worked, but we shifted to a commission model when we learned how to split up the ticket and so forth and keep that all good. Production went through the roof after that. So it was pretty good. Guys are making good money. Sure. Disassemble line when the car pulls in the shop, it goes right to mechanical, goes right back after that to the back line where there's structural and metal smithing. Then it slides on tracks right over into paint, goes through paint, gets prepped. We have not to this day had a car in paint more than 24 hours, no matter the size of the job. Wow. We're very well set up there. Comes out of the booth. We are not fans of color sand and buff. We're fans of paying attention to the filters, paying attention to the booth, paying attention to the painter. That's awesome. And paying attention to the car to stop that enabling process in a body shop. We're tired of seeing dead sheep flying around the shop in the air and and so that's worked out well. And that's it. We did bring back the assembly line to the business. We have escape lanes throughout our shop so that a car can slide out of a stall if there's any delay and it doesn't tie up anybody and they get the next car and keep on working. And by segregating those skill sets into different apartments, a tech can drop us tools and another tech can come in and pick them up. That's right. And he doesn't need to know all the nuts and bolts of what happened to that car prior. Love so it. We're pretty excited about that. And that's another reason for the consolidation of the big shop. It's awesome. I like a couple of things. Oh, I like all of what you said. I heard you say enabling the painter. Uh-huh. That was really a... No, an, an enabling department. Ah. You know, Color Sand and Buff is an enabling department. So yeah. a lot of painters know if you're going to buff it. Well, then I don't need that extra five minutes or I don't need that extra 15 yeah. to do the things I need to do to assure that that paint job's right. You know? Yeah, I love it. And uh, it's tough to watch guys buff cars all day. And then you walk in somebody's booth and they're clogged solid to filters, you know, and, yeah. and you're just like, yeah, oh, this kind of goes hand in hand here. What, what, what are we thinking? You know, being a painter by trade, you know, pay attention to that and real grateful that we're able to have that wisdom and learn a lot from the industry and what others have to share has helped us a lot. Yeah, no, I love it. David, can I ask you a question? You betcha. You said something that I found really interesting when you talked about switching over flag time. Yeah. You figured out how to split the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get deeper into this, but one of the hardest part of labor segmentation is exactly that. It's it's understanding the database doesn't throw repair time based on who's doing what or disassembly, reassembly. R&I is just, it's an R&I time. It doesn't tell you how long it takes to remove versus install. Sure. How did you guys come about splitting your times and understanding that? Yeah. Well, what we do is when we assign the work, we'll sort by labor type or operation. And you'll see six or seven lines of a 40 line estimate will just be repair. You'll take a look at those. You'll see six hours, nine hours, 12 hours, two hours, what have you. And then we'll assign those repair hours to the tech. And then we'll sort by replace on that work order and look at things like a quarter panel and so forth that need to be welded or is something that that back line would be doing. And then we'll check those couple boxes. Everything else is given to the R&I tech that's not mechanical. And there is a compromise. You know, I've had paralysis for years about, well, you know, if you're getting paid 18.5 hours on a quarter panel and so much of it is R&I, how do you split that up? We didn't split up. We just made a conscious decision to move on and go, you know what? Give the back guy tech 18.5. Keep him motivated. Keep him going. Give a little more percent to the front guys. 
to R&I that stuff and just keep a rhythm going there. Everybody sticks to purpose, sticks to their skill set, becomes a master at it when that's what they constantly do one day after another, car after another. And it works out pretty good. There's been no argument about it. Repair goes to the repair tax and re- welded replace goes to the repair tax. And then anything part replaced, you know, like an R&R of a non-welded part goes to the disassemble, reassemble guys. So you have disassembly, reassembly guys. So they're doing both the disassembly and the reassembly. Yes. Does the same technician do it on the same cars? Or No, they can mix up, but most likely the two guys will do it on the same cars. Okay. Um, we might have two guys split up working on two cars, might have two guys on one car. And that uh, just depends how the line is. We only allow three cars in line to be disassembled or reassembled at any time. We're very conscious of the emotional aspects of it. When people see too many cars, they see a line too long, they're assigned too much work. We'd like to visually show minimal vehicles as possible and reduce the clutter, finish what we start and keep it clean and move on. Big psychological aspect to this, you know, quality's emotional, the whole thing. So got to simplify it, keep it down to one car at a time correctly and repeat it. And uh, so Dave, quick question for you. If you have welders, they're only welding. And then if you have repair technicians, they're only repairing. They're a crossover. There's three departments back there. There's metal smithing, which we know is metal work. Mm-hmm. There's cut, fit and weld. And then there's the frame machines. So three techs work that whole back line and they get a work signed to them and they can move to any stall they need to, to perform those skill sets, to do the car that they're assigned to. Okay. What we realize at the end of the day, the shops aren't collecting a lot of money on frame. You know, there's not a lot of frame time anymore. You know, your setup's ending up at body. You have certain programs with insurers that if you don't write the poll and show the measurement before you upload the estimate in a couple hours, you don't get it. I mean, that's just baloney, you know, (laughs) really been a challenge. But at the end of the day, on a good month, on 500 grand, I'm not seeing more than 3,500 bucks in frame polling time. 100% right. Yeah. Baffling. Not the way it used to be. So we, we couldn't assign someone just to the frame. You know, so we had to start moving them around. Yeah. That's why I was curious. Yep. It's best all three do all three skill sets. And that's good, you know. They can mix it up. Yep, absolutely. And they get good at it and they get a little spoiled, you know. Yeah. (laughs) When they see those hours coming in and they don't have to do time for time on the R&Is, right? Hey, but in today's times, you know, you got a crash coming into shops and stealing people and doing this and that. And and I can tell you what, for the first time in my life, I realized the importance of spoiling somebody. That's right. You know, and uh, I'm fine with it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, when they're not winning, we're not winning, right? That's right. Yeah. Clark, you chimed in there for a minute. Let's hear about your model. How do you compare or differ from David over there? Um, ratchet it up another couple notches, maybe, in terms of how we've segmented. The term we've used is linear remanufacturing. Not ours, stolen. It's a, a good way to term it, though. It's the idea that we started with this assembly reassembly team, which works great because you have more technicians that have overlap. Uh, we now are doing strict disassembly teams. We're doing strict reassembly teams. And then in repair, we treat repair very similarly, except we don't have repair technicians. We have heavy metal technicians that are doing that welding and that structural heavy metal repair, right? And then I have filler primer repair tech as well. And then in paint, it's prep and paint, the most similar, I think, to other body shops. And then when it gets back around to reassembly of reassembly technicians, there's a lot of good that comes from it. And I'll be happy to elaborate on that. The bad of it is that you're really lean at any kind of size because we have basically what amounts to two disassembly full-time techs. Now I have five that can jump in and do disassembly, but the whole idea of the model is that I'm not shifting people around. I'm trying to keep everything flowing at the proper rate. I have one person that does all day long heavy metal repair. I have one that's doing filler and primer, one that's painting. So, I mean, you see the problem with this is that you end up very, very tight on who does what. And you often find yourself with these problems of I have more disassembly or more 
repair or whatever, then I have technicians at that point. The good of it, though, is exactly what David was talking about. You end up with masters, right? I mean, if all you do all day is primer and filler, right? How damn good do you get? You get good. That's right. Yeah, you're, you're the best real fast. Mm-hmm. If all you're doing is welding structural and heavy metal repair, you're getting really damn good. And I think you said disassembly, reassembly is 50% mm-hmm. of the time. I think it's escalating. I think we'll be at a point where it's probably two-thirds of the repair pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, more parts are getting replaced than ever. OEMs are getting harder and harder about what they allow as repairable. So as that continues coming down, you're going to see more replacement. I mean, a bumper used to be a few components. A modern bumper replacement today could be 25 parts, right? So our disassembly team, like I said, it's two people full-time. It's a damage analyst in the bay with them. Those two disassembly techs are not in separate bays. They're in one bay. They're working together. Taking off a bumper, easier with two people. Taking off doors, easier with two people. If you're bringing a car in, the car needs to be scanned. And there's probably some other measurements that need to be done at the same time, right? So so they can separate and each can do something. The damage analyst can start pulling down repair procedures. Eventually, they huddle up, talk about what they're going to be doing on the vehicle. Then they separate. And, you know, one can start working on the front end, one can start working on the door, grab the other guy when he needs them. We are not commissioned. So the benefit of that is everyone doesn't mind swapping into Bay if they need help. But we don't really have that issue anymore because we have a two-man team there. Then cars get grounded until we have approval, all parts on site, and then we send it into production. At this point, we find that if we split it up and look at the vehicle as damage analysis, which is car arrives up until the point that it leaves that disassembly bay and it's been written in the bay for what we actually need to do. Then we have another stage of pre-production, which is us getting approvals, ordering parts, receiving parts, mirror matching parts. The production pie of that repair, which is from repair stage all the way to reassembled, test-driven, quality controlled, and delivered. Production is actually the shortest part of the repair at this point. I can guarantee the cycle on it better than any other part of my repair. Damage analysis is almost impossible. Even if we write a good preliminary, I'm air quoting here, a good preliminary estimate, no one's ever going to be 100% accurate. It's just impossible on a modern vehicle. You just don't know. So to predict anything about how long a car is going to be in damage analysis, if we do it fully, it's really, really difficult. So we've gotten to the point where we're no longer even trying to schedule cars for the size of the repair by itself. We're trying to schedule more on how long do we expect it to be from that point of arrival until it's completely disassembled and written. It's the only thing we feel we have control over at this point. But like I said, once it gets into production, we've got everything planned out. We know how long it's going to be in each department, who is actually going to be touching it. You said nothing sits in paint longer than 24 hours. You could not be more right. One of my biggest problems right now is keeping a paint department fully loaded. Absolutely. Five years ago, paint was the biggest block in our shop. Mm -hmm. We changed nothing and paint is begging for more cars. And I think it's because, yes, we've gotten more efficient. Our processes allow for that. But also paint is becoming the materials are better. The systems are better. They're getting through the same panels that they used to paint. That bumper fender took them longer five, 10 years ago than it takes today. And then on top of that, we have more disassembly, reassembly work per bumper fender than we ever did. So we're actually beginning to think that we may be at a point where we need eight disassembly, reassembly techs for every four repair slash paint techs, which that seems like a huge flip in the industry. It used to be felt like it was more one-to-one. I'm at the point where we're talking about maybe having 10 disassembly, reassembly techs for every two paint, which just seems like it feels really uncomfortable, but that's what the numbers are starting to tell us. Yeah, And I don't know what you other guys are seeing in your shops, but paint feels like if they can't hit 400% efficiency at this point, we're failing them in some way. We're not getting the cars ready for them in the right way. Yeah. And they're hitting that 400 working, you know, five hours a day. 
right. which is turning it into 225 right, exactly. at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's not appreciated, you know, but, uh, but you're right about the products and the chemicals and so forth. Color matching's really changed quite a bit. It's become more a science than an art. Oh, so that's a big deal. Yeah. So, which is why, you know, I feel more comfortable about the idea of linear remanufacturing, really segmenting this way. There's going to be a lot of hurdles and I feel like the first ones through this wall, we're going to take some bruises on the way there, but we'll reap the benefits on the other side of it because my techs are happy. I can Mm -hmm. see the same from what you were saying. You know, that first year, it's tough. It's a big changeover. It's uncomfortable. You're putting them in a position, like you said, that they used to do all of their own work for years, decades, potentially. And then all of a sudden you're telling them that, no, you're going to do this 10% or 15% of the total job. And they don't understand it until they've lived it for a little while. And then all of a sudden, if I went into the shop later today and said, we're going to go back to the way we used to do things. (laughs) Oh boy. I think I'd have a bigger war on my hands than I did before. I think you would because they do really like it. You know, I had a couple buddies who owned a shutter company and I'd go to their plant and I was always so envious of how one thing went from one department to the next seamlessly and synchronously all the way through. and, And then he had a finished product. And I'm like, dang, we got to get that right in our business. You know, this that's a big deal. Well, and that actually brings up something interesting too, because we no longer assign work because we're so segmented. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to assign. Every car is going through the departments as necessary. So we use a production system that just allows our cars to show up in a queue that, hey, this needs to be done, gets sorted based on priority and dates. And there's no picking, no choosing, no signing. They just grab the next ticket that's in line. Yep. They start working on it. And then when they're completed, they flag it as completed and it goes to the next department that needs that vehicle. And that's it, a wonderful thing. Yeah. And it allows us basically to production manage without production managing. Absolutely. Without having a guy actually pick and choose, right? And move the pieces around. If I could make a comment on the disassemble, reassemble, something to think about um, having the pit crew mentality when building those R&I teams is so important when you watch NASCAR and so forth and they do the same thing over and over again, right? And they get really good at it. You're seeing that. We're seeing that which people are becoming masters at what they do versus just being good and above average. Thinking about that pit crew stuff because taking apart the car, putting it back together is one thing, but what makes one tech different than the other in any body shop? Because, you know, most techs fix metal the same way. They change parts the same way. But time management, organization, staging, there's so much to that, the orderliness, the cleanliness of things. You know, having the car behind you already staged, ready to go and served, like when you go to the dentist, they got the tray already, all the stuff, and and then the doctor comes in and does the magic. And so I think there's quite an opportunity for that to be enhanced in our industry. And I think in 2022, our focus is going to be taking that disassemble, reassembly uh, to a different height. I think that is a separate skill set that can really, really be recognized in our industry with experts that take on that department. And that's a new title and really powerize that department. Our industry has been terrible at understanding labor segmentation forever. I don't know what's been the biggest hurdle. Maybe it was that it was- it has to be a change in mentality. Yeah. That's what it has to be. Like we were doing something one way many years ago and now we have to change it and adapt and do something a little different. And that's the biggest hurdle is getting people to adapt to that, right? Totally agree with you. Let's tell me a little bit about your shop, Sebastian. I think it's very similar. Back in 2017 or 2018, my father, he went out and he saw Carstar Red Deer. This shop was known for having one of the best length of rentals in the country like six, seven days out of the war, right? So he went out, took a tour of the shop, saw what they were doing, and they were doing something like a team pay system. So it was a flat rate shop mixed with some hourly, but everybody was working as a team and kind of splitting the pot at the end, right? So, you know, he looked at it. He said, this is something that I'd like to do for, you know, my location 
2019, we branched off and we purchased the two shops on our own, Brantford and Brantford West. That's when we started with the team. Now, at the time, the owner had told me that it takes about three to four years to establish. And me being naive, I said, there's no way we could probably do this a lot sooner. I was very wrong. (laughs) And he was very right. (laughs) It does take a long time. And it is a change of culture that you definitely have to do. And you have to have a lot of buy-in. Like Dave said, there's got to be a little bit of spoiling, everybody coming together as a team. So before it was just a regular flat rate shop. So, you know, one technician is assigned to a vehicle, you know, that's his vehicle, right? So you're going down the production list and you have technician A assigned to three cars, but then technician B is free. So then it's like, you want to reassign technician A cars, but then he starts getting upset and, you know, things like that start happening. So what we did was we established a team pay. So essentially what happens is all the hours go into a pot, everything that's produced, pain and body. And those technicians are going to have helpers. One of the biggest challenges was, well, what happens with the helpers? You know, are you going to deduct that time or what's going to happen? We explained to them at the same time, we can't be paying double for labor. So what we came up with was the helpers are going to be just straight time deductions. So whatever they work, that's whatever time is going to get deducted. If they're producing more than what they work, that's all going towards your pot. So essentially the technicians are taking any overproduction that's happening by the hourly, right? Yep. Disassembly is massive for us. And that's one of the biggest things that we tackled was that car needs to get disassembled and reassembled, much like Dave and Clark. I I also do have two disassembly technicians in each shop, and that is our most important department. I would say in the disassembly is, you know, where we need to take the most time. Yeah. Right. That car can sit there for two, three hours if we have to disassembling that car, blueprinting it, taking a look at what we need. Because, yes, even though we can't do 100 percent accurate estimate, we have to try. We have to keep errors at a minimum because what happens is as soon as that car goes into the production, that car can't stop. The second that car needs to stop, that's where we have an issue. Slow down to speed up, right? Yeah. One of my operations managers at the West store, that's his biggest saying, slow down to speed up. I love it. That's you know what he relates to the team. So essentially what happens is it's created an environment where everybody needs to work together. So if we need to assign two technicians to a vehicle, we will assign two technicians to a car. We have a production meeting in the morning. We talk about guys, what do we need? Uh, Maybe it's a bigger reassembly. Maybe we need two or three people on the vehicle, but it gives us a chance to, you know, talk together as a team and figure out what the plan is going to be for the day. It's helped out immensely because it's also created a learning environment. I know we have a technician shortage happening. At the same time, it was very intimidating. Yeah. In the system before, you know, it's very intimidating to go into a shop. And if you're working in a flat rate shop, the technician can't really take time to do much teaching. This team environment has allowed us to create such a space where there is time for teaching, where people can work together, where people can grow. I'm proud to say that I have seven apprentices. That's awesome. There's only about 26 in Ontario. I have seven of them. Three of them are going into their level three and they're going to have their their license pretty soon. Very nice. So we take the same route with everybody that wants to get into the business. If you're motivated, if you're hungry, if you're smart, organized, you know, if you really want it, we'll help you out. So I know that with the disassembly department, you really do need to have somebody with experience. And we always do. There always is somebody that has experience, but that's also where my apprentices start. Pair them up with somebody that has experience. And if they can learn how to disassemble and reassemble, well, then we'll get to the uh, you know bodywork and welding and stuff down the road. One huge thing that helped us out with this was uh, I got a chance to see the, the vehicle doesn't go into their payroll until the vehicle is delivered. So- hmm. Once the vehicle is delivered, everybody gets paid for the job. This has allowed me to see exactly how many production hours we can do in two weeks, even a month. 
So what this allows me to do is it says, okay, if we're going to produce 80 to 100 hours a day, then we're going to bring in 80 to 100 hours a day, right? It's helped us establish a scheduling in the office um, in such way that that's what we're doing. You know, we're taking out 80 to 100 hours, we're bringing in 80 to 100 hours. Obviously, in the office, the preliminary estimate is very important. A lot of the time we do book people in for a preliminary estimate that'll take about an hour or two. If we need to disassemble the car prior to it coming in, we do. That way we can order parts and everything so that when the vehicle does get here, we're ready to go. You know, we'll still bring it into the disassembly department once it gets there and do a complete plan on it. But at the very least, we have some strong information to begin with, right? And it's helped. Like I see the numbers, you know, we started back in 2019 and, you know, one store was at 14 LOR and my West store was almost at 17 length of rental. Overall touch time was 1.73. For 2021, we ended with my one store being a 10.95 length of rental. And the one that was at 17 came down to 11 and a half. Overall touch time, we're we're looking at 2.2 right now. Wow. So it's definitely helped us out. We move the work. We focus on quality. We focus on working as a team get more set of eyes on the car. That way, you know, mistakes are are a minimum. Right. And make money and have fun while doing it, right? Yeah. Make money and have fun. That's what we all want, right? (laughs) More eyes on the car. That's a great point too. Labor segmentation, it really does bring more quality checks just by the nature of more eyes, right? Right. It's hard for a reassembly tech to put a car back together if the guy sent it to him with bad bodywork, right? Yeah. So you get technicians that are having more ownership of rejecting cars as opposed to a guy doing his own repair and then, man, the bumper doesn't look that great. I'll run some screws through it, right? And I don't know about you guys. We've never really had that issue anyways, but it was because it was through ownership having to be really involved in quality control. Today, we don't have that problem because the ownership is at the technician level, right? The technician Mm -hmm. is starting to own the quality of the vehicle. Yeah, they got to set up the next guy for success. That's for sure. Yeah, not only that, but also it gives them a chance to work together, right? So like if one technician maybe doesn't have the skill set or they have less experience on a type of repair than the other one, both of them come together and look at it together and say, okay, what's the best course of action for this car, right? If that car moves, everybody makes money together. Well, also better understanding of how the next technician wants to get it so it's as easy as possible. Exactly. So is it fair to say all of you had body guys doing their own thing and everybody did their own thing like a traditional shop? I think that's Yeah, I definitely have that. So if everybody was the same as every other shop that was out there that didn't do this labor segmentation and have this culture that you guys have built, why even do it? What brought you to the point to say, this is not working for me in my shop and we have to move a different direction? What gave you that catalyst to start this process? Well, I can tell you, you know, what my mindset was, was that I was tired of a technician owning the car, key to key. It was difficult. It was a tail wagging the dog situation at times. And, you know, every tech does disassemble, does reassemble, does repair, does weld, do all those things in a traditional environment. And so they were already doing them. And when we had tested this back in 2014, we took one building, had nothing but R&I in it, another building with nothing but repairs. And it was amazing of how fast the repairs went through. You know, you'd have 12, 15 cars lined up that looked like carcasses and all the bodywork was done and the panels were welded on them and you just couldn't keep up fast enough with a disassemble or reassemble. So it was important for us to not have that ownership and that special personality attached to each car assigned to them. We just wanted more consistency, everything more uniform in the facility. I think for me, the biggest thing is just felt like it was always behind, felt like it was always a push. Mm-hmm. It felt like, right. you know, like you're bringing in cars. It's not really organized. You have people getting stressed out. Yes. I had issues where I had a technician getting stuck on a vehicle and, you know, that starts to affect their pay. And, mm-hmm. you know, you start to see like, okay, how can we do this? So we're not behind it. We're in front of it. 
You know, how can yeah. we make the decision so we have control over our business rather than the business having control of you? There you go. And I think that's where it came from, right? How do we maximize each other's strengths and then, you know, use them to move all the vehicles along? And also, how do we come up with a plan that we can actually stick to? Right. One of the biggest things, actually, and we laugh about it all the time, is when we used to do things the old way, Fridays were psychotic. Yes. You know what I mean? You get to a Friday in a shop, you know, everybody's running like chickens with their heads cut off. All of a sudden, you know, Fridays start getting relaxing, right? And it's like- Might go home early that day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. So, you know, that was our main thing is, is getting control of the situation. I love that. Good. Clark, uh, getting outside of our four walls, you think you're the best when you're inside your own company, right? Because your customers tell you you're the best, your technicians think they're the best, truly believe it. At some things, we're the best. But are, are we the best at everything? No, I don't think there's anyone that is, I've ever met that is the best at everything. I've been in some of the best shops and they'll ask your opinion of, we're really struggling with this. You got any thoughts? And there's something that I can always point out to improve. So once we got outside our four walls, started talking to some consultants in the industry, you realize this industry really is so far behind other industries in terms of taking advantage of what modern production looks like, right? Once we did that, we saw the holes, I think, really quickly of where we could improve. And one of the most cogent points I think I've ever heard was, so every car arrives and then every car gets delivered as a repaired vehicle. It's just the order of operations in which you do every step, right? Whether you order parts five times for that car or one time for that car, you're still ordering all the parts for that car. So you were just talking about Friday chaos. Friday chaos was always because we're delivering these four cars because they got to go out on Friday and then two o'clock rolls around and we're missing a bracket for this car. We're missing this for this car. All right, someone get in your truck and go and start running around to dealers, right? And now it's 630 at night and the techs are all working overtime and you're putting these cars back together. Well, what if at the front side damage analysis, we actually did it? So that was something I was going to ask you guys. One of the hardest cultural shifts for us was what did 100% disassembly really mean, right? When we first started, 100% disassembly meant, all right, we were really doing a better job at disassembling cars. But I kept pushing for 100% disassembly means if it's coming off the car and we're replacing something, it's 100% disassembled, right? That means if cooling is coming out at any point, it's coming out at the beginning. If that means disabling the car, it means disabling the car, right? Because we don't know when you take that radiator out or that AC condenser or whatever, something may get damaged during it. It may have already been damaged and you can't see it until you've done it. We can't wait until five days in after all the parts are on site. We have to do it on day one. So it may make things harder. We're air quoting here, harder on the rest of the steps, but it makes it so much easier and reproducible. And I have confidence that at the shop, things can run smoothly because everyone understands what they're responsible for. Absolutely. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. I love it. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on is you made the shift and you got outside of your four walls. You said you use consultants or vendors or things like that. Tell me a little bit about, I know we're all from different places, right? We got two car stars, one Canada, one US, and then fix. Did you use your operations people to help you through that process? Did you use your, your paint vendors? What kind of consultants in that did you use? What helped you get to the process you're at today? Sure. We're Sherwin-Williams customer, have been for a long time. And I credit them with a lot of why, where we are. I think the big triggering moment for us was actually uh, Lee Rush from Sherwin. He was running some seminars that we had witnessed. I actually brought my entire team to a convention that was hosted in Chicago at one point to see him speak, to get some buy-in. This was before we were a car star. Then we became a car star. Ron, uh, don't get an inflated ego here, but you've been a big part of these (laughs) conversations. Uh, And serious, I mean, a good area manager here, because I can say it until I'm blue in the face, but sometimes the team needs to hear it from outside. 
right? Absolutely. Just because I'm saying it doesn't mean that I'm right. So having someone else come and say, hey, here's what we're seeing working outside of your walls is also a big help. Making sure that my team is aware of what else is going on in CarStar so they can see both the the good, for sure. I want them to see what is working, but I also want them to see the bad because now I have some youngsters. You've mentioned that you have a bunch of apprentices. We brought a bunch of apprentices in. But once we got outside our walls, you start talking to some owners. We met some other car stars, um, three PG groups, which I would absolutely recommend any owner to. You know, you're not going to for sure get everything from everyone, but you're going to get something from everyone. We met some really good operators that also were doing labor segmentation, and it reinvigorated my team even more when we came back with some of those ideas. So I really recommend get outside of your walls, talk to other owners. I've also become more willing to pay it forward. My phone is always open to anyone that wants to talk about these ideas because I feel like just by talking through it sometimes, I recognize our own problems, our own deficiencies, where we've kind of looked over something and it gives me an opportunity to think about it once again. Good. Yeah, I love it. So let's continue on. Sebastian? I got to give credit to two people that really kind of helped me go through that journey. First person is Daryl Hemstreet at Carstar Red Deer in Alberta. That guy, he can be a genius, man. Like the way that he ran the shop when I went to go take a look, you know, I'm really grateful that he opened his doors. Like I called him and I said, can I go (laughs) look at your shop? And he said, yes, no problem. And he opened his doors and explained everything to me. The second person I got to give credit to is my dad. Sometimes he pushes me to do things a little bit quicker than I would like. You know, I had a little bit of a timeline and he said, no, there's no timeline. We're doing it now. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you got to- No more talk. Let's move it. Start hustling. Yeah. Good dad. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's that type of guy. So those two people kind of helped me embark on that journey. After that, it's been the team, right? You know, the teams I've had in both shops where we did it. The main thing is finding like-minded people that will do it with you. That's right. And if you find the people that are willing to work as a team and to step up with you, then everything's easy, man. You just put something in an SOP, then you start doing it. But the biggest part is who's going to stick with you when those mistakes start rolling and when things don't start working and you have to fix them. And I know we still got a long road to go, but the important part is that we know that and we know that if there's any changes that need to be made, like we're going to make them. Yeah. Well, I love it. So Dave, let's hear from you. Yeah, you betcha. Um, A good 10 years ago, you know, I really started looking outside the box, you know, like Clark's talking about and Sebastian. And I found on my own journeys, just outside of the auto body business and looking at other businesses like Target or Best Buy and fast food drive-throughs, sadly. (laughs) And, you know, 10 years ago, when you go into a Best Buy, even today, you walk in and you see appliances, the sign, and you see computer sign, and you see television and audio and video signs. And when you walk there and somebody asks, you know, if you need help, you say, yeah, I'm interested in a TV. Well, let me get you over to the TV department. We've got experts in the TV department. And they help you out and they know exactly what they're talking about. They're pros at what they're doing. They totally get the TV. The computer guys get the computers. The appliance guys know everything about a refrigerator. And they were segmented. So I came back to the shop and I thought, well, you know what? We've got to do the same thing. And that was pretty much the kick for us was that we need to get with the Joneses here. Our industry's slow. You know, yeah. from day one, all of us can remember in a dealership is back as far as we've been in this business. They have heavy duty. They have light duty. They have transmission. They have lube and tune. They have all that stuff segmented already right under our eyes in our own industry, and we didn't do it. And so, you know, they needed to do that. You know, there's dealerships today checking in 250 to 300 cars. I was at a dealership the other day with 27 riders. I mean, you've got to segment that stuff. And so what was cool is uh, taking a little chill from the auto body biz and paying attention to my surroundings more when I went out to how people are processing things. Quite fascinated with the movie, The Founder, if any of you have watched it. Love if you haven't, it. I definitely Great movie, yeah. think you need to watch that. 
It's about the McDonald's history. You know, there's some good stuff out there, but you've got to keep up with the times. You've got to keep moving and you need to stay a little bit ahead of the curve and pay attention to where you think it's headed and honestly use your gut, you know, really go with your gut. And when you start second guessing, you'll live in paralysis for the rest of time. Yeah. Just go with your gut. Go, you know, make a move. That's it. Make a move. Quit talking about it, right? I love what you said about the founder because I relay that in my every day. I look at that going, that was the norm. There was no fast food industry. There was the restaurant industry. Through that, they made the lean process or the express model or whatever you want to call it, the fast food model to where everything changed, right? The fast food chains, the franchises that have grown, have grown exponentially with the same similar style process of labor segmentation, exactly what we're talking about today. So we're on that cusp right now, I think, of the body shops, right? We can't continue to do the same way that we've done it for the last 100 years or 50 years or whatever. We have to change something, move forward. You guys are taking the reins and making that happen. Let's talk about the challenges through that process when you guys were starting and implementing that. For those who are going to embark on this journey, what are they going to encounter and that it's normal to encounter that and still move past it? Tell me a little bit about that. I can actually step in just because I yeah, have a lot cool. to talk about on that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so one of the biggest things and, and one of the comments that I had with one of my technicians when we were splitting up the team pay was, you know, are we going to turn this into a communist thing? And I was <laughs> like, well, no, it's not going to be communist. You know, we have to take a look at everybody's uh everybody's skills, see what everybody can do. Obviously, there's some people with more experience than others. One of the biggest challenges we had at first was everybody was in a similar rate. They were a very close-knit team, and I think they knew that. And I think that there was a little bit of, of challenge there because, you know, one can do more than the other. And I think that tends to be like a normal thing that'll happen when you're starting something like a team pay. So we did have to step up. You know, we did have to pay more than the average flat rate was going, a lot more. And we were okay with that. Kind of to Dave's point, you know, we, we had to spoil a little bit and we did. So if you were with us for a longer period of time, if you had a different skill set than the other one, maybe a little bit more experience, you were going to get paid a better rate than somebody that was not. So that was the first thing that we kind of went into. The second thing was getting them to actually work together, you know, so for them, it was a little weird. If you have a vehicle, you know, there's two people working in a car together, you know, well, one guy was doing one thing the one way, the other guy was doing another So now they had to actually talk and figure out a plan that they could do together. We got over that one pretty quick, again, because of the reason that people did get along. I do have to say that we did lose three technicians that were with us for quite a bit of time. One thing that I want to tell people that want to embark on the journey is something that Daryl told me was you will lose people because not everybody is going to be on the same boat. If you don't lose people, then you're very lucky. But if you do, it's okay. You're going to find like-minded people that are going to want to work with it. Yeah. Third challenge that we kind of ran into was, okay, we had the back working together. How do we get the office to do the same thing? You know, how can we do a little bit of labor segmentation in the office so that we could focus on different things? Because if your back's running at six cylinders, you can't have the front running at four, right? Right. So we got together and we started doing a little bit of labor segmentation in the office. And that's where my wife comes in. She learned all the guidelines, learned all the procedures, learned the estimating side of things. And she ended up being like our auditor. So what happens is we have the appraisers, we do the blueprinting, we do everything. At the very end, before we send that final up for approval, she's going to take it and she's going to audit it. And she's going to make sure that we have everything that we need. So we're not getting any pushback. For carriers you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. One big thing that we did with that too, is we got everybody on Cosmosync. And they were able to take progress pictures as the car went along. 
So, you know, one big challenge that we ran into was, okay, now they're working together, but like now there's no documentation. This car's moving along through the department pretty quick. And, you know, we were hurting on that side, right? Having everybody taking pictures of the in progress at the same time and then having my wife review the file at the very end really streamlined the process in the office so that things at the back could also run smoother and there was nobody stopping the file to take a picture. Yeah. So that's kind of like my journey. Your three takeaways. Clark, let's hear from you. Challenges. No, it went went perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) No pushback. Everybody bought in right away. Yeah. I mean, buy-in is always hard and I, I don't think that changes no matter what you're trying. I mean, the right idea, the wrong idea, the perfect idea, there's always going to be buy-in issues. The first thing was changing our language. Instead of using the word changing, we need to start talking about we're improving. The team needed to understand that we weren't just changing for the sake of changing. We were doing this because we were looking for efficiency improvements or quality of life improvements or name it, right? It was to better ourselves, better our work life, our customer experience, right? So I think just making sure that they understood that we weren't just throwing ideas against the wall to see what stuck. We asked the question, why? Why do we do this? Does it make sense that we're doing it the way we're doing it right now? If it doesn't, how do we improve on that? Okay, let's talk about that then too as a team. You know, it wasn't just us saying from top down, this is what we're doing. It was, let's talk about this, you know. And initially we tried some way that the technicians think, well, this will be better. You know, let me be the same guy that disassembles and reassembles the car. Okay, well, all right, now you're not here. So now what do we do? You know, you didn't you didn't mark the the hardware the same way. Okay, so we need to solve that. So now we come up with an idea of micro bagging everything. So all the hardware is zip tied directly to the parts. So even if you aren't here for some reason, the next technician in line can get in and reassemble that car because everything's right where it's supposed to be. Everything has a purpose, right? So it was more on just making sure that we understood why we were changing processes instead of this is the direction we're moving and everyone hop on the train and let's go. They had to feel like they had some control over it as well. So really a culture shift, a complete buy-in, right? Yeah, 100%. You didn't move forward until you kind of answered those questions and moved through what they thought might be better. And then you kind of rearranged things to make sense of the best way for the entire shop to move forward, right? Right. Yeah. And we were one of those lucky ones. We didn't end up losing any technicians. We lost buy-in initially, right? There were some disgruntled employees that took longer. But as they feel the improvement, it's not always something you can see, but they could feel it. And then all of a sudden the buy-in starts coming. Now, you'll still have problems, you know, because especially once things start working well and you start finding that, hey, we could tweak it just a little bit more to improve this this much more. When you take it back to the text and say, hey, we're going to do this new thing, but everything's working so well now. Why are we changing it? No, we're not. We see that there's a way that we can improve. So you got to keep driving for improvement and make sure that they understand it, not just say we're doing it. And I think that helps retain the team and finding some people that are not just bought in, but actually driving that improvement, right? If you can get them to buy in that point where it's not coming from just one person, it's coming from a team leader on the floor or a team leader in the admin side. And I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I think labor segmentation up in the admin side is just as important. Over the last three or four years, we've went to an admin side for customer service only. We have an admin side for insurance relationship and estimating only. And then we have on the floor that damage analyst that I was talking about. He's an estimator, but he's not thinking about making it compliant for insurance. He's thinking about what do we need to do to repair this car, 
right? But these are the, the tasks that we need. He creates the sheet based on that. Then we make it insurance compliant. You know, okay, well, they only pay sublet, you know, markup or whatever on this. On the floor, I don't want him to think about that. All I care about is making sure that that car gets written 100% accurately for what we need to do based on repair procedures, what's wrong with the vehicle, and then let someone else handle the part that they're skilled at. You know, exactly the conversation that we've been talking about, masters of one thing instead of trying to be good enough at everything. Yeah, no, I love that. Dave, let's give me your take on all this. What what are challenges that you had crossed over on? Yeah, I have a take. I have similar stuff that the gentleman here just shared and these guys are pretty wise and I love it. I can tell you that we made a decision to do what we did and you know, you've got to compromise. You got to be open-minded. You got to understand that you're not the go all that everything you say is in stone. You know, you got wiggle room. We can together figure out 90% of all the things, but there'll be that 10% we'll be working on for the next 10 years to to fine tune it. But I can tell you that one of the things that was important to us was to remove poison right away. That's for sure. Always understanding what the intent is and sharing it with the shop, sharing it with the people and getting that message out. Hey, here's why we do what we do. Here's the benefit of it. Here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Here's where this will bring, you know, new techs into the industry. Eventually, this is where you'll have a better life. You don't need to be looking over the fence to to go to the Joneses shop next door anymore. You know, this is going to be a good home. And we just try to share all the benefits of it. And when you're trying to stick to intent, no matter what project you're doing at home or work or what have you, you have to be really good at fending off outside influences. Here's an example, an insurance company that's very aggressive. You know, we have a system here and that particular account was a counter to that system. We had shared to get the account. We said, here's the process. Here's what we do. Here's what happens. It's first come, first serve, all these things. And they go, we love it. It's great. We got to sign you up. We got to sign you up. I'd love to be on your DRP. I'm not real familiar with it. I've heard things, but I'm going to take a chance. No, Dave, we really feel that you're doing what we're doing as a company. And then great. Here comes the cars. Oh, and by the way, our cars are first. Oh, and by the way, you've got so many hours to get this done. And by the way, and by the way, we're like, well, wait a minute. We had a story to tell. You engaged in the story. You said it was an alignment. And then now what happens is, yeah, but we give you the check faster and we give you this faster and we will flood you with work. Well, as much as we all want work, we got to be careful of some partners and who we partner with. I would say that 99% of our DRPs, 90% of our DRPs, we have 11 of them. I can tell you they're true partnerships. When we suffer, they feel our pain. They try to make it work for you. And, and, and when you're winning, you share with them and you say, you know what? I can save you a little bit on this. I can save you a little bit on that. And it's a great partnership. You're not reprimanded. You're not called up and ripped a new one when something goes south or you can't take a car. But to have a model that a lot of us have set up in the business to streamline process and create that first assembly line, to have that outside influence of those checks or that money to stop you from the bigger picture, it stopped a lot of people in the past. And I just felt that it wasn't in our best interest to go down that path. The money was nice. But we must stay with the masses on those who want to protect that repair, have that car done right. Not saying that those certain companies don't want them done right. It's just that if we're going to have a model like this and your partners buy into that model, give them what they deserve and give them that model. And to have that outside influencer come in and, and wave a check, it's tough. And so you have to be disciplined and you have to stick to purpose and you have to, you have to make sacrifices to make it all happen.
I love that. That's an interesting take on it. I mean, stick to your guns, basically, right? And be prepared to cut ties with technicians that don't buy in, staff that doesn't buy in, vendors that don't buy in, insurance companies that don't buy in. I mean, you have to be ready to adapt and adapt and overcome, baby. But yeah. you also have to be steadfast that this is the direction we're going and we can't let ourselves be set back because a tech doesn't buy in or an insurance company doesn't let me fully disassemble a car properly, right? Yeah. I mean, if it doesn't fit what you're trying to do, what your end goal is, you may change the process a little bit, but the end goal needs to always be driven towards. Yeah. Pledge of allegiance in the morning, followed by serenity prayer now, probably, huh? To keep this all going <laughs> together. So yeah, you need courage. You need wisdom, right? I think the biggest thing too is understanding that this is a way of life. It's not really just a temporary change. Right. Yeah. This is where we're going. Mm -hmm. Those are the shops that I, I've seen that they go into it thinking that it's going to be an easy it's change. Be quick. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and you, they tell you, hey, we're setting up disassembly. Let's just start there. We'll have a disassembly segmentation. And then you talk to them three months later. Yeah. The one tech didn't come in and then all of a sudden it fell apart and then we're back to normal. It's like, well, yeah, but just because one guy doesn't buy in, you, you got to keep driving towards it. Right. Yeah. This is a big change. You have to you have to buy in that it's going to be a long term change. You have to plan and you have to write checks yeah. because yeah. it is costly. There is a cost to start these type of, of movements. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love all the conversation of the challenges. So how does that translate? Tell me what you've seen. What are the benefits that you've seen come from all this? Great question. You know, what's interesting is back in the 80s when the DRPs were coming out, the insurance companies would get at the podium there and they'd talk about the programs. And a lot of shops fought that. You know, the insurance partner stood up there at the podium and said, we're interested in reduced cycle time, enhanced communications, and a better quality repair. And you hear the audience in the background moaning and crying, going, oh, you're not going to come take over my business, you know. And in essence, there were people who caught on to that at the time. And, and the person at the podium, the insurance partner was telling you, I want you to go to the bank faster. I want you to deposit the money quicker. I want you to not have a backlog and a large whip. I want you to be able to have a good connotation on the street. That's why we're going to measure your CSI. And when we're photographing your shop and we look at your bathrooms and we want to make sure there's not a vacuum in there, we want to help you market your company. And some caught on at the time and a lot did not catch on at the time. And so I can tell you that the insurance partners were such a gift their motives may have been different, but if you could take it that way, and the bottom line is they want you to be well-known, they'll assist you with work, they want you to put that money in the bank, but do it right, do it once, get it in, get it out, keep our phones from ringing, take care of the situation there. And so with that said, the benefits is improved quality, morale, sustainability of a technician, um, cash flow, all kinds of things. And then at the end of the day, what everybody on this call understands clearly is you're building equity. The Fix Auto Group's a wonderful group. you got a good name, CarStar, Abra. At the end of the day, we're building equity. I think that a lot of people sell or move around because they're frustrated. But if you can implement the types of models that Sebastian and Clark are implementing and so forth, you might just have something more sustainable than it was in the past. Have a little bit more of a comfort zone. I love it. And then uh, get out before EV takes over everything. <laughs> <laughs> so sustainable and yeah. duplicatable. Yeah, yeah replicatable. replicatable. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I think, Dave, you touched on some really good points. Oh, thank you. You know, one of the things you said is, yes, it's better for morale and it's a more relaxed environment for sure. Like Dave said, it is very costly at the beginning. But I think if you just step back and not really think about the money, but, you know, you kind of just see your end goal and it's like, well, what do you want out of this? Do you want improved performance? Do you want improved morale? Do you want a better work life? Right. 
then that's what you need to chase after. And no reward comes without sacrifice, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, so You're so right. We kind of took a step back and it's like, okay, let's not focus on the money for a little bit. And that went from everybody, from ownership to management to uh, even the, the technicians on the floor. Everybody was so focused on how many hours can I produce? But, you know, maybe those hours produced don't really turn into money, right? Maybe it's just like a pride thing. So how can we bring it down a bit and not think about how many hours are you producing single, but like, you know, how many hours can we produce, you know, good quality as a team, right? The big benefits is you're producing more cars. Everybody's happier. You know, the quality obviously goes up and your customers are happy, right? You know, when you're taking the vehicles out in three, four days, rather than taking, you know, 12, 13 with them. Customers are happy and everything just comes into place. It's just like puzzle pieces fitting together. Once you start the journey, you know, one by one, it starts coming. You start seeing your sales, you start seeing your profit, you start seeing your customer scores go up and it's a journey. You're not going to go into that six or seven length of rental shop and that 4.9 stars, you know, in one day and it won't happen in a year and it won't happen in two. It's a way of life, like we said, right? Lots of benefit, but lots of sacrifice also. Yeah, and if I could add something just real quick before Clark, people would see me writing these checks to invest in this, you know, month after month after month, and they're like, David, you're nuts, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, I understand you own a rental property, yeah? And your return on your rental property is like $280 a month, right? Yeah, and I understand you bought that for $800,000. So why is it okay to invest in that, you know? And you're putting money into it and do all that. But we need to look at our own processes as real estate. You know, it's that same mindset of we're investing in it to get a return, right? But it just seems unheard of almost because it's just not the way a lot of people think. But what you invest today, you'll get back, you know? And you'll get it a lot faster than, uh, you know, other than these past couple of years in real estate. But you'll (laughs) you'll get it a lot faster than that average home over 10, 15 years. Absolutely. Clark, if you're not going this direction, I don't see how you can do anything other than be purchased out. You described it as an investment, right? Something that has value long term. If all you are is just a body shop that you have technicians in that are controlling it and are always looking for, can I make more money if I go across the street? What do you really have? You have a warehouse that you currently have some technicians and cars in, right? All I have is this thing that's currently working. I feel like since we've made these changes, we have ownership of, it sounds stupid, but IP, right? We start feeling like we actually have a a real business as opposed to just a bunch of sublet technicians, right? I can bring more people in and expand or retract as necessary at any given point based on my decisions, not based on who comes through the door, right? I can bring new apprentices in and get them on the floor and start training them. You hear everyone talking about technician shortages. You're, you're damn right there is. But that's because when you're looking for a technician, everyone says the same thing. I need an ATEC. I tell them I don't even know what an ATEC is. We have disassembly technicians. There's a very, very discreet set of skills that these guys need. And I can put them working with another team member so that they can learn this trade over the next three, six, 12 months to ramp into being a ATEC in disassembly where your guy that you put on the floor, if you want to train him, and he's supposed to be knowing how to do disassembly and repair work and learn a little bit of welding. Mm -hmm. When's he going to be a master? Five, 10 years from now? It's 20 years in a $200,000 toolbox. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Which only needs 10% of that toolbox today. There you go. And see, it's funny you bring that up. We sent all of our technicians toolboxes home. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at what you actually need in DFR, it's not that big of a toolkit. And now we have 
a lot of square footage picked up because of it. My technicians don't have the expense of buying tools all the time. Mm -hmm. If they say, hey, we need this new thing. All right, let's address it. Let's figure out, is it something every tech needs or is it a single use shop tool that they use You know, every two weeks one guy uses? It allows us to have more ownership of what our company is doing. I don't know how you can't start going this direction because five years from now, with the complexity of cars, the complexity of the industry, the complexity of insurance relationships, you better have real deep pockets because every person's going to be taking home a monster paycheck if they know all of those aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. So boiling it down, let's talk about benefits for sex. So what I've heard, increased profit, better efficiency, better production, quality far above the past, and then the ability to add in those lower skilled technicians. I mean, everybody agree? Yep, yep, absolutely. Consistency. Consistency? Yeah. So obviously all that translates to your profit at the end of the day and your sales increasing, your profit increasing, your KPIs and your hours per day and LOR of efficiency, all that's increasing, correct? Yeah, for sure. We have less techs per hour, however you want to start looking at it. I'm targeting the biggest dollar per square foot, I think, is a number that needs to start being looked at in our industry. We don't really, you know, the old guard was always, let's get bigger shops, more techs, spend more, spend more, spend more, when really we should be, how do we be more efficient with what we do have, right? One of the ways we did that by having team-focused disassembly, right? We have a larger disassembly bay than a traditional disassembly bay because it's two techs in one bay. So they actually have more room, less opportunity for damage, but it's more techs per square foot than other shops. So I'm getting more production in the same square footage but I'm also getting the benefits of more square footage per car being worked on. Yeah, I love it. So tell me, for the people that are listening, what's one piece of advice that I can get from each of you that could go to that someone that's looking to start this journey? So whatever you want to do, whatever goal you want to take on, you got to find the people that have been successful doing it and you got to follow them and you got to learn and you got to get information. Anybody who wants to start, I think that's the first step to do. Find out who's done it, even if you're in the middle of the journey, whatever reach out to them. And I'm sure that anybody in the position that we're in would be willing to help out. We look like we're very passionate individuals and anything we can do to better this industry, we're definitely going to get it done. So just reach out and find that person that's been successful and that'll be a good start. Awesome. Dave, you want to go? Yeah, you betcha. You know, um, three things, you know, I think that uh, is real important for, for somebody to understand. And I don't think that if you can answer all three, I don't think you'll have much success in moving forward. But number one is, you know, you have to ask yourself, what do you want? It's one question. You've got to be able to answer it. The second one is, why do you want it? If you can answer that, you go on to the third. What am I willing to do to get it? And most people drop out on the third. Mm -hmm. And if they can hang in there and they can stick to it and stick to that intent and keep remembering why they wanted it, what they wanted, why they wanted it, and remember what they told themselves that they were willing to do to achieve what they're after. And I think it's a very simple thing to say. It's very difficult to hold to. But there are folks that can do that and can pull that off. But I think that would be my advice. Do that exercise. I love it. Clark? Trust that you just don't know. Be confident in your ignorance. And I think that's a hard hurdle for a lot of people to climb over, especially in our industry where people tend to be in this industry for a long time. Just because you've been doing it for 30 years, the industry is not what it was 30 years ago. So exactly like Sebastian was saying, find other mentors, find your consultants through your paint company, through CarStar, through other owners. You need to spend some time out of your comfort zone, really understanding why people are thinking about this in a way that you haven't yet. Yeah. Don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know, right? So altogether, since the labor is segmented, right, and the tasks that you have are limited to and optimized 
for speed and efficiency, right? The people are interchangeable. We have a continuous flow, a division of labor, and we reduce that wasted effort, right? That's it. We agree. Mm-hmm. So it's set the bar, you know, do your diagnosis, right? Eliminate your waste and 5S and get ready to go. And then you have some sort of goal. Yeah, small iteration. Small iteration. We're not going to change the world in a day. And I think that's something none of us has brought up. I think that's important to say is that Sebastian brought this up earlier, right? That it's a five-year transition. And everyone thinks that they're going to get into this and then, hey, I'm going to change the shop around. And then Monday morning, we're going to open. We're going to be a new facility. It is not that. Set smaller goals. If you're not doing full disassembly yet, you don't have disassembly only text. Start there. Start with something small that is achievable in a time frame that you feel comfortable with. And then once you get that down and it's been consistent for a while, now you can start adding something new. But don't go all in on day one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's a great point. You know, getting on first base is so important. It's really funny. One time uh, goofing around with some buddies in some meetings and I said, I bet I can make everybody put their coat on without saying a word. He's like, well, how do you do that? I said, well, you know, I'll bet you X amount of dollars I can make everybody put their coat on. He's like, all right. And there's 20 people in the meeting. So I go to the thermostat and I turn it down to 60. Everybody put their coat on, you know, and, and, and the point of it was, as we were talking about, there's a lot of things that you want that you need to articulate. And then some things you want, you don't have to articulate. You just turn the environment into it. And people like paint by number. They like to follow steps. So if you can focus on the environment and have it be self-sufficient, it helps a lot of people. So big deal. And by the way, we had them take the coat back off. We put it on 75. <laughs> <laughs> Never said a word, right? So. I love it. Uh, you know, we, we have to make those small goals. We have to set the bar at some point in time, right? Mm-hmm. And say, whatever that small goal is, how do we get there? Keep moving forward. We're going to fail at something. And at some point we have to turn that around and just keep moving forward. You got to be humble, very humble. Yeah. yeah. And people don't like failing. So you need to make sure that you have those achievable goals. Because yeah. if everything keeps failing, then that's when you really lose the buy-in. Yeah. And failing's okay. Let's just uh, keep it to a minimum and, and not repeat the same thing, you know, so. And it's it's not all butterflies and rainbows. Like that's just the bottom line. Like it's there's not. so many times where I've taken a step back and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not doing this right. Like thoughts go through your head and it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. But then it's like, like David said, you get, you got to remember why you're doing it, you know, what you're willing to do. So you just kind of take a step back and be like, okay, it's not working. How can we make it work? Right. And then continue to move forward. But yeah, I mean, there's been plenty of times where things just hit the fan and you're like, oh my God, you just got to reset and try to figure something else out. Right. There's a backslide, right? We've all had backslides on stuff. So, but we have to make that continuous improvement and that leadership and that accountability to push forward and still be all in and can continue to reach that goal, that bar that yep. we've set, right? That's right. Clark, Dave, Sebastian, I really want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to me and, and talk to us out there to understand a little bit more about your process and how that style that you're using, whatever you want to call it, it's not might not be lean, it might be labor segmentation or however you might want to talk about it. I love to hear about it. I love that you're all doing the different things, but yet really the same thing, right? So I really want to take the second and just say thank you for attending. Thank you for talking to me about that. And I really appreciate your time that you spent with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. us. You're listening to the Collision Buzz podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes to come.